Thank you much. In our evening services at the moment, we're working our way through the Ten Commandments one at a time. Tonight we get to number seven, uh, which is to not <coughs> commit adultery. In today's society, apparently, it is disconcertingly common to cheat on your partner. They reckon that in one in three marriages, at some point, either the husband or the wife will be unfaithful. 45% of men admit to it, 22% of women admit to being unfaithful. Men primarily stray because they're after sexual gratification, women look elsewhere for intimacy and affection. And quite a few people commit adultery as a way of getting revenge on their partner, something their partner has done to them. It's quite common to get involved with colleagues at work or being unfaithful on a business trip. <coughs> Apparently uh, 70% of people who are unfaithful have affairs with their brother-in-law or their sister-in-law. And if you live in Stratford-upon-Avon, well that is the adultery capital of the United <laughs> Kingdom. You are more likely to have an affair there than anywhere else in the country. According to the Daily Mail, it's risky to travel in the car with your husband or wife because that puts pressure on your relationship. Both men and women complain that the other half breaks too late, indulges in road rage, breaks the speed limits. Specifically, men complain that their wives drive in the wrong gear, drive too slowly, fail to overtake other vehicles, take too long at junctions, break too hard, Park too far from the curb or drive too aggressively. Does that sound familiar to you? <laughs> Women criticise men for getting angry with the satnav, <laughs> tailgating, driving too fast on country lanes or motorways, playing music too loudly, honking the horn too much, and dangerous overtaking. Again, stereotypes confirm that. On average, Couples will have an argument within 28 minutes of being in the car together. 69% of every journey ends in a row. And if you are travelling on unfamiliar roads, if the trip lasts for more than two hours, if you're going to the supermarket or visiting your mother-in-law, then the risks increase exponentially. For me, for the first time, I think I understand why so many couples come to church in separate cars. <laughs> <laughs> when it comes to grounds for divorce, excessive arguing comes in at reason number three. The second most common ground for marriage is failing is lack of preparation for real life after the whirlwind of the nitty gritty of setting up home, managing the money learning to cope with each other on bad days and having children. All of that just proves too much for some couples. <coughs> but 55% of marriages end because of adultery. Both of this to constitute valid grounds, you do have to file for divorce within six months of discovering that your husband or wife has been unfaithful to you. Strictly families. You will have been aware of a massive fallout because of the drunken kiss that Sean Walsh and Captain Jones exchanged with each other. They've been outraged and unfortunately booted off the show immediately 
But they got through to the following round. I understand that 50,000 will be watching the dance off to see what happens to them uh, in the immediate future. Did they commit adultery? No, they just had a kiss. But that was enough for Sean's girlfriend to end their relationship, although Katja and her husband apparently are still together, at least for the time being. Tim, I can't hear you. Can you not? Mm-hmm. Keith, can you hear Oh, well, thank you, Keith. That's great. Yeah? Okay. They didn't break the command against adultery. But that doesn't make what they did okay. The spirit, if not the letter of the law, was clearly broken. You might recall Bill Clinton saying, I did not have sex with that woman or everything else but, actually. Stanley Kubrick's last and controversial film, Eyes Wide Shut, is an exploration of what it means to be unfaithful. In the film, the real life married couples, they were then, Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise, run into problems when she admits that she has fantasies about sleeping with another man. And, and he can't handle that. And sets the husband off on a quest for sexual encounters with his own. Neither of them actually ever has sex with anyone else. But they are profoundly unfaithful to each other in different ways in the course of the movie. Uh, adultery is as much a matter of the mind as it is of the body. But the commandment, do not commit adultery, doesn't actually cover that. What, can, what constitutes adultery, actually? Uh, in, in English law, adultery is consensual sex between a man and a woman when at least one of them is married to somebody else. And for it to constitute adultery, the sex needs to take place between a man and a woman. If one of them has an affair with somebody else of the same sex, that doesn't constitute adultery. Whatever they do, they can't break this particular commandment. Maybe that the law needs updating here. The lawyers will tell you actually need a very specific way of breaking the law for it to be clear that the law has been broken. If you go back to Deuteronomy, uh, you'll find that adultery is even more narrowly defined. Chapter 22, verse 22. If a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. That punishment, that penalty, wasn't always strictly enforced. In Proverbs chapter 6 at the end, we read that a man who commits adultery lacks judgment. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot. And his shame will never be wiped away. For jealousy arouses a husband's fury, and he will show no mercy when he takes revenge. He will not accept any compensation. He will refuse the bribe, however great it is. So you could actually pay the wronged husband off if the husband was prepared to accept financial compensation for the crime. But both Deuteronomy and Proverbs see adultery in terms of sleeping with somebody else's wife. That, that's what the crime is. It is sleeping, being sleeping with somebody else's wife or someone else's wife sleeping with someone other than her husband. Adultery is defined in such a way that the wrong party is the husband of the adulterous wife. You have taken away that person's wife. If the husband has an affair with another woman who isn't married to anybody else, according to that narrow definition of adultery, technically he hasn't actually broken the commandment. 
the law is that one-sided because the point is, the whole point of the crime is to ensure that the husband knows that his wife has to with anybody else, so any children that she has are his. That was the point of the commandment. That was his purpose and intention. The single overriding consideration is making sure that you know who the father of this baby is. And that's why so much sore was set by the prohibition of adultery. It was as much about protecting the bloodline as it was about protecting the relationship. Fast forward to Jesus, and you see he has a very different definition of adultery. Jesus says, whoever looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. I don't think he said that to make every man on the planet guilty of adultery at some point. Um, but in a culture which to some extent defined adultery in terms of taking another man's wife away from her, Jesus puts the boot firmly on the other foot. For him, the victim of adultery is not the husband whose wife has gone off with another man. For him, the victim of adultery is the woman. Uh, the man who has looked lustfully at another woman has wronged the wife to whom he is married. It becomes a sin against his wife for him to look at another woman lustfully. And actually, he's also objectified the woman that he fancies and weighed up his mind what a pleasure it might be to take a faith. So for Jesus, adultery is not just a matter of what goes on between the sheets, it's about what goes on in the mind. It's not about protecting the, the purity of the bloodline, it's about how men treat women, whether they marry to them or not. We think of, of lust in terms of sexual desire, but Jesus isn't actually quite that specific. The verb we find in Matthew 28 is used of all kinds of desire. So the bottom line is what he's talking about is simply wanting somebody else, and not necessarily in a sexual sense. I suspect that sexual attraction is the main cause of one night sense. But affairs can start in other ways. Looking for other forms of intimacy. Allowing yourself to be drawn to someone else because they're more fun to be. They understand me so much better than the person I'm married to. They make me feel good about myself in a way that I don't find when I go home. Someone who is sufficiently attractive to wonder what it would be like if we did this, or we went there, or this happened, or we did that together, or if I was with them instead. That is where the seeds of adultery are sown, and where they begin to grow. It's not just lusting after that person, it's actually I would like to be with that person. And just allowing that idea to grow, and take shape, and take form, and gradually become part of a possibility, and then an action. Martin Luther said, we, about temptation, we, we can't stop birds flying around our heads, but we can stop them nesting in our hair, is the way we put it. Keeping our minds clean. How do we stop the box setting in? Well, it only takes one stupid, thoughtless act to damage or wreck a marriage. It takes two to make or stay a marriage, so things are only going to work if both players uh, play their part. But what, what can I do? What's my role? 
Well, the problem with prohibitions is that, as we've seen, you can end up making very careful and specific definitions about what breaking the commandment entails. I've done this, I've done that, I've done the other, but I haven't committed adultery, so that's all right. There's a whole range of things you can get away with without breaking the seventh commandment. But to suppose that that's okay, because actually it doesn't come within the definition of adultery as I see it, is simply wrong-headed. What we need to do is turn the commandments on its head. And although what your partner does is outside of your control, the best way of keeping the negative commandment, do not commit adultery, is to do the positive and be completely devoted to each other. Love them with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. Hang about, he you say, aren't we supposed to love God like that? Well, yes we are, but that's why I think God gave us the gift of marriage. When you get married in church, you come together before God and ask his permission to be utterly devoted and committed to this other person. Lord, I love them this much. And God says, love them that much with my blessing. Because that love, that commitment, that devotion is what God loves to see. Go ahead and enjoy yourself, Jesus. There's no competition as far as he's concerned, because from now on he sees you as a single couple, the two becoming one flesh, devoted to each other and together devoted to him. He doesn't like to see it isolated or alone. When he created us in his image, the Bible says he created us male and female. That means that that specific relationship between husband and wife, but actually in all relationships, he wants to see the love and the grace and the commitment that reflect his nature, the relationship that is eternally shared between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when God sees his character and his image reflected in the way in which we engage with each other, then he is delighted and says that it is exactly what he had in mind when he made us. When we are wholeheartedly devoted to each other in our relationships, that's when his love is made perfect within us. The second thing we can learn to do is to communicate. That's what Adam failed to do in the garden of Eden. You never read of the first man saying a word to his wife. He thinks she is amazing. Out of this world, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, she says. But the, the first man never tells his wife how much he loves her. All goes on in his head. He never communicates his love to his wife. Be open with each other. Be honest with each other about your feelings. Don't assume that your other half knows that you love them. Find ways of communicating it so that they can feel it for themselves. And in a marriage relationship, actually is any, in any close relationship, there should be people, someone, that we can let the barriers down about our inmost thoughts and feelings, our hopes and ideas. Someone we trust enough to place our lives in their hands and say, this is me. Do you accept me? And if you're not married, still look for a good friend where you can be open about yourself, knowing that they will keep your secrets, your vulnerabilities, your fears safe. And that you are loved and respected and valued, even with your failings and insecurities. That is what God wants for us. That is part of what church means in terms of the fellowship we have with each other. 
Learn each other's love language. Again, this applies to other relationships outside of marriage between parents and children and good friends as well. Each of us finds affirmation and a sense of being valued in our own distinctive way. So let's talk about five different love languages. So some, some people feel valued and special if they receive a gift. That really makes me feel like I'm, I'm a good friend. Like my husband or my friend does me, but they offer them a gift. Other people, what they really enjoy is someone spending time with them, doing things together, quality time in each other's company. That is what they really value and treasure. Maybe just having someone listen to them. Others again find human contact really important a hug, kiss can make a world of difference to how they feel. For others, it's a matter of conversation. Being paid that compliment means the world to them. Words carry great loads of significance as far as they're concerned. For others, again, it's having someone do something for them, an act of service that makes them feel special. If you value the person with whom you're married, if you value your friendship, Look for ways to express that, that they relate to, that they connect with, that helps them to understand the value that you place upon those people and how important your relationship is with them. Find ways to make them feel special, loved and valued. And then, show grace. I talked about this the other week with respect to parents. (coughs) Don't give other people what they deserve or what you think they deserve. Find ways of being nice to people even on the bad days. Because it is sometimes when people behave at their worst that they need loving the most. Uh, So grace means not focusing upon all those irritating things that wind you up. Love covers a multitude of sins. It means looking for and focusing on the positive things that actually be, remind you why it is that you love this person and why they're so important to you. Practice forgiveness. That's not an invitation to be a doormat. There will be times when difficult issues need to be aired, but choosing the right moment to do that can make a lot of difference to how that conversation works out. Show grace at all times, especially on the bad days. And part of making that work is, is learning to look at each other or learn to look at yourself or the situation through someone else's eyes. Especially if you're convinced that you're right and they're wrong. What's their perspective on this? How will they feel about what I've said, what I've done? Why have they kind of covered it from the direction that they have? How has my behaviour made them feel? What kind of husband, what kind of wife? What kind of friend have I been? If I put myself in their shoes, what would I need? What would I want to make the situation better? The bottom line is that the commandment not to commit adultery matters, not because God is particularly concerned about the pedigree of your children, they figure that is important, but because relationships matter. All relationships matter. And marriage is a relationship of trust, love and intimacy and adultery is one of the surest and most effective ways of destroying that relationship. But all our relationships matter to God.
So take the command not to commit adultery and take the heart not to say or do stuff that will wreck relationships or damage other people or cause hurt or harm or problems, but actually to be devoted to each other in love and commitment and faithfulness and honesty and trust. It's only through our relationships with each other through our fellowship with each other and our friendships and the love and support that we share, that any of us can reach the potential that God had in mind when he made us, because we are relational human beings. None of us is an island entire with himself. Married, divorced, widowed, single. We are all called to love those who share our journey with us. To love them with the love that Jesus has given us. To be devoted to them, committed to them, supportive of them, looking after them, taking care of them. When we do that, the image of God is reflected in our relationships. I'd like to close by reading the words of, I thought it was just a poem, but apparently it's a song written by Godfrey Bertolt, um, just as a meditation on our relationships. When I look at the blood, all I see is love. 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 When I stop at the cross, I can see the love of God. But I can't see competition. I can't see hierarchy. I can't see pride or prejudice or the abuse of authority. I can't see lust for power. I can't see manipulation. I can't see rage or anger, or selfish ambition. I can't see unforgiveness. I can't see hate, or envy. I can't see stupid fighting, or bitterness, or jealousy. I can't see empire building, I can't see self-importance. I can't see backstabbing or vanity or arrogance. I see surrender, sacrifice, salvation, humility. Righteousness, faithfulness, grace, forgiveness, love, love, love. When I stop at the cross,
I consider that a 